Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in then to Genesis chapter 44. We're going to dive right into our text this morning. When we left off the end of last week, Joseph's brothers had returned to Egypt in order to buy more food, more bread, in order for them to be able to survive the great famine that was in the land that had also uh, continued down in Canaan. And they brought their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them, having finally convinced their father, Jacob, that there was no alternative. There's no way that they could go back to Egypt and face the prince of that land if they didn't bring their youngest brother with them, as he had told them they must. When they got there, they were met by their brother Joseph, whom, of course, they didn't recognize to be their brother. And he treated them this time kindly and generously and with great hospitality, much differently than he had the first time. He freed Simeon, their brother, whom he had held hostage while they went back to Canaan. He gave their brother back to him. Um, he threw a magnificent feast for them and invited them into his own home. Now we pick up the story this morning in chapter 44. This morning I want to cover a rather large portion of scripture. We're going to cover all of chapter 44 and the first half of chapter 45. So what I want to do is I want to read this in three different sections. The three sections are the first half of chapter 44, which is where Joseph sets a trap for his brothers. And we'll read about that. And then the second half of chapter 44 is when Judah, one of the brothers, stands up and has this long speech in front of Joseph, trying to appeal to him to let uh, Benjamin come back with them to Canaan when they return. And then in chapter 45, at long last, we will see the unveiling of Joseph's identity. He will reveal himself to his brothers. It's been, it's been hidden up to this point. And in so doing, he will also unveil part of God's plans for Israel. So let's first turn to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless the reading of his word, and then we'll dive into chapter 44. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning already to gather with your people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and worship you, and to sing these kinds of songs that articulate the hope of the gospel. Father, we are so grateful that though our sins are many, your mercy your mercy is more. And Father, you have been merciful and gracious to give us this book. You have been merciful and gracious to preserve it throughout the ages so that we can trust that what we hold in our hands is your very breath. And so God, would you be gracious even now as we read it to remind us and to speak to our spirits that these are not just words on a page that they are your divinely inspired word, that they are your breath. And may they have the impact that you intend in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, and in our church, and in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the first 17 verses of Genesis chapter 44. Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, <clears throat> fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as mor morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. 
When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. Then they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So in these opening 17 verses of chapter 44, Joseph sets a trap for his brothers. He tells the steward, as you're giving them the food, and as you're putting the money back yet again, I want you to sneak my silver cup into the sack sack of Benjamin. So just sneak it in there so that they won't see what you're doing. And then he instructs the steward to chase after them the next day and to accuse them of stealing that silver cup. Now the question here is, why does Joseph set this trap for his brothers? Why does he do this? How does this fit into the overall narrative of the story of Joseph's life that we've been walking through in this section of Genesis? Is this just a random story of Joseph's love for his brother Benjamin? Or is there a larger, deeper meaning at play here? The brothers have returned to Egypt at this point to buy more food so that they would survive the famine in Canaan. They've brought with them Benjamin, which was this prince of Egypt's requirement that they do. He said, don't come back here if you don't have your youngest brother with you. And so they bring him back. While they're there, Joseph seems to treat them with all kinds of kindness and generosity and hospitality. He invites them to his home. He throws a big feast for them. And now they're preparing to go back to Canaan and bring back more food and bring back the sustenance in order to keep them and their families alive. And they have everything, right? They've got the food. They've got the money that was returned to them again. They've got Simeon. They've even got Benjamin. They've got everything. But here, Joseph sets a trap. But, but why? What, what is the purpose of this trap? Well, first, the purpose of this trap seems not to be just to get them in trouble. It, it doesn't seem like the purpose here is to, to kind of get back at his brothers and just get them into trouble. Twice, the brothers offer themselves here as slaves to Joseph of the, uh, when, because of the stolen cup. First, they offer that to the steward. Uh, they say, hey, if the cup is found, the one in whose sack it's found, you should kill them. And the rest of us, we will willingly be your slaves. A pretty rash thing to offer. But then after the cup is found and they come before Joseph back in the city, then Judah offers that all of them are willing to pay the price and become slaves 
in Egypt, slaves of Joseph because of what has been done. Note that Judah conveniently leaves off the previous offer of the one in whom it's found that he would be killed. That's nice of Judah to offer that. But the point here is that had, had they been about trying to get them back, um, had Joseph been about trying to get them back, get his brothers back, and just trying to get them in trouble, um, I, I don't think that's uh, an option here because they had two opportunities, and both times they modified that punishment. The steward said to the first offer in verse 10, let it be as you say. He who is found with it, he who is found with the cup, shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Well, that's not what they said. That's, he said, let it be as you say. Well, that's not what they said. They said, let the one in whom it's found be killed, and the rest of us be slaves. And the steward says, no, only one of you needs to be a slave. The rest of you are innocent. After the second offer that Judah makes, Joseph responds to him in verse 17 by saying, Far be it from me that I should do this. Only the man in in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So the purpose of the trap is not just to get the brothers in trouble, because both times that they're offered that opportunity, they pass on that opportunity. So the purpose of the trap was in some way to bring Benjamin back to Egypt so that he wouldn't go back with them to Canaan and that he would remain in Egypt with Joseph. Now, why is Joseph trying to get them to leave Benjamin? Why is he trying to get them to abandon Benjamin and go on back to Canaan and leave Benjamin in Egypt? Is he doing this just because he loves Benjamin deeply and he doesn't want him to go back to Canaan and he wants him to stay with him? Is it because of his deep affections for Benjamin? Well, surely he does deeply and truly love his youngest brother. And in just a moment, in our passage this morning, we're going to see just how deep his affections are for Benjamin, who's the only full brother of Joseph. But something else is motivating Joseph here besides just his deep affections for his brother Benjamin. What's motivating Joseph here? I think what Joseph is doing here is that he is testing their loyalty. He's he's examining whether or not their heart change is really real. Is it it genuine? Is, is, Is it real or is this just pretend? He sets a trap here. And what, what I want us to notice is that the bait of the trap is not the cup. That's not the bait of the trap. The, 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 the bait of the trap that, that triggers the trap is the news that Benjamin and Benjamin alone is going to have to pay the price. That he alone will have to come back to Egypt and to spend the rest of his life as a slave to Joseph. That, that news to them, that, that Benjamin will have to do that, but they will get off scot-free. That they will be, as the steward says, innocent. And that they'll be able to return to Canaan without any fear of punishment. That's the bait. That's the bait of the trap. And the question is, what will they do? What will they do? Will they take the bait? Will they abandon Benjamin? Like, whew. Glad it's not me. Glad I didn't get in trouble. Man, the rest of us get to, this is like killing two birds with one stone, right? We get to go back to Canaan with all this food, and we don't have to pay any price for what happened. Clearly, something happened because they found the cup there. We get off scot-free. And in addition to that, we get to get rid of another one of our father's favorite sons. That must have been tempting to them because, after all, they had done it before. Remember, this wasn't the first time they had been presented with a similar opportunity. 22 years earlier, they had taken advantage of their teenage brother at the time, 
Joseph, who had been sent at the request of his father to go check on his brothers who were, who were out in the field. And they took advantage of him at that time. And they, when he came out to check on him, they stripped him of his robe of many colors. They threw him in a pit. They sold him to slave traders. They betrayed him and they abandoned him. So now, 22 years later, before Joseph is going to reveal his identity to them as the one that he, he is the brother, he is their long-lost brother who's standing in front of them at this very moment, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, before he reveals his identity and before he offers to allow his family to come from Canaan and come to Egypt so that they might survive the remaining years of the famine, he needs to know that the change was real. He needs to know that he is able to trust them. Or if they're just the same old bunch of scoundrels who had abandoned him and mistreated him 22 years prior. Now before we find out whether or not they take this bait or not, I want us to consider what's at stake here. Let's consider what's at stake here. If they took the bait and abandoned Benjamin went back to Canaan without him, I think it's safe to presume that Joseph would have kept Benjamin in his custody because, again, as we'll see later, he deeply, deeply loves his youngest brother. And he would have wanted to protect him from the famine and help him survive that. But I think this is the last we would have ever heard of the rest of Joseph's brothers. It's the last we ever would have heard of their father, Jacob. I think that would have been the last straw for Joseph. That would have been the end of his mercy, the end of his patience. I think he would have let him remain there in Canaan and die at the hands of the famine, which he knew because of the dream that there were still five more years of severe famine in the land. And just consider the implications of that with respect to God's broader plan and what he's trying to accomplish here. As we've reminded ourselves many times, God is in the process of building a nation here. That's what he's doing. He's building a nation. And these sons of Jacob were to comprise the tribes of Israel. And without them, there would be no Israel. And without the seed of Abraham continuing, from where would the Redeemer come? Now, we could theorize that perhaps God could have brought the Redeemer, his son Christ, through the line of Joseph or through the line of Benjamin even, but we know that wasn't his plan. We know that God's plan of redemption was to bring his son through the tribe of Judah and Judah would have perished in the famine in Canaan had the brothers taken the bait. So, did they take the bait? Let's read the second half of Genesis chapter 44, beginning in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servants speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant." For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left with his mother's he is he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. So he's hearkening, hearkening back to the first visit to Egypt and the interchange, the interplay conversation they had with Joseph. Then you said to your servants, bring him, bring the youngest down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy a little food, we said, 
We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife, speaking of Rachel, bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. He's talking about Joseph there. He thinks Joseph's dead, killed by animals. I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, if I don't bring Benjamin back with me, then as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Or how can I go back to my father If the boy is not with me, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And so thankfully, providentially, we should say, they don't take the bait. They don't take the bait. Instead, Judah appeals to his brother Joseph to let him stay as a slave in Egypt instead of Benjamin. Two things I want us to to note here from this section, and it's going to take a moment to kind of lay all this out, and so bear with me. But the first thing I want us to note is the tenderness here of Judah's compassion, the, the, the tenderness of his conscience that, that clearly his heart has been softened by the Lord. And we, and we compare the Judah that we see here with the Judah that we saw in chapter 38. This hard-hearted dude who just lived for himself. And he lived by his own selfish desires. What he saw, he wanted. And what he wanted, he took because he wanted it. And because he could take it. But we see a different Judah here. We see a Judah has be, who has become more tender in his conscience. Uh, a Judah has become soft to the things of God now. We see a much different Judah here, and this teaches us that God's purpose in working on our hearts has implications that far outreach our own lives. Back in verse 16 that we just read from chapter 44, Judah is talking with his brother Joseph about the steward finding the cup in Benjamin's sack. And he doesn't make any excuses at that point. He doesn't try to wiggle his way out of that. Instead, he accepts the blame. Look at verse 16. Judah said at that point, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Now, when Judah says, God has found out the guilt of your servants, he's not just talking about the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. He's not just talking about that cup. He knows that he and the rest of his brothers are innocent of that. That's why they made that rash statement. Hey, whosoever sack it's found, you can kill him and the rest of us will be your slaves. Because he, he, he knew he didn't take it. And, and when it was found in Benjamin, he's like, the rest of us are innocent. And so, so he's not primarily talking about that. And so what is it for which God has found them guilty, as he says here? I think what he's talking about here. Is how he and his brothers had treated Joseph 22 years ago. They've already given indication in the story of Joseph, as we've noted, that they think God is punishing them for that. 
Remember back in chapter 42, when they first came to Egypt and uh, first came before Joseph to buy food to survive the famine, Joseph accused them of being spies. The second most powerful person in the greatest empire in the world accused them of spying on their nation. That's a serious charge. And, and then he takes one of, uh, then he throws them in prison, and, and then he takes one of their brothers and binds them up, puts them in shackles, and holds them hostage, and tells the brothers, go back and get your youngest and bring him back to me. And, and right, in the, right in the middle of all this, right as they're hearing the catastrophic news of all this bad stuff that now is happening to them, they begin to get an inkling that maybe God is trying to get a message through to them. Maybe God is trying to get a hold of them. Because they say in, in verse 21 of chapter 42, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Talking about Joseph. We are guilty concerning our... They're saying this to themselves, not to Joseph, not to anyone else. We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress is coming upon us. And so God has, had already begun to work on their heart. And so when Judah says here in chapter 44, verse 16, God has found out the guilt of your servants. He's not just talking about the silver cup. He's talking about their sin in treating Joseph, their brother, so badly some 22 years prior. See, all along, God has been working on Joseph's brothers' hearts to bring them to repentance over their sin in mistreating Joseph. We, we talked about this last week. He used a famine. He used a, a scarcity of food, no food, unable to eat. He used Joseph's accusation of them as spies. He used jail time. He, he used the, the worry of consequences when they found the money had been returned in their sacks. Oh no, what is this that God has done to us, they said. He used the necessity of having to return to Egypt with Benjamin. There's no other way. We, we have to do this. We have to bring our youngest back to him or we'll die. And then at the end of chapter 43 last week, we saw that he even used the undeserved kindness and generosity of Joseph to work on their hearts. But here's the thing. God's relentless heart work on Joseph's brothers, as kind and as gracious as that was to them, had implications that far outreached their lives. Far outreached their lives. God was building a nation. A, a nation through which he would one day bring his one and only son who would defeat sin and death forever for those who would come to him in faith and repentance. That is what God was doing. And he was orchestrating even the hearts of Joseph's brothers to come to repentance, to, to soften their hearts so, so that they might see their sin and come to grips with it and see their guilt so that they might be ready to be reconciled and so that they might be ready to be rescued by their brother in gracious to Joseph's brothers without a though church he was also orchestrating their repentance to be a means by which he would continue his plan of redemption to rescue sinners like you and I today he was using their repentance to do that. God's purpose in working on these guys' hearts had implications that far outreached their lives. And, and God's working on our hearts today has implications that far outreaches our lives as well. When God brought me to a saving knowledge of his son Jesus Christ when I was 17 years old, was he being gracious and merciful to me, you better believe it. Absolutely. But I am convinced that his work on my heart at the age of 17 was for a much higher and 
bigger purpose than just accomplishing my own salvation and my own redemption. So this is part of what keeps my hand to the plow today. Because I know that my salvation was not just about me. It was about my family. It was about my sons. It was about you. It was about your spiritual growth, even now. It was about your children, the children that come after you, and by God's grace, the the grandchildren that come after them. And the legacy that is left one day through our faithfulness. Even today, as he graciously and mercifully does heart work on me today to help me fight against indwelling sin and and pursue after holiness and grow in my own sanctification, I know that it's not primarily about me. His heart work on me today has implications that far outreach my life. And church, God's heart work on you today to bring to you a conviction of indwelling sin, to bring to you an awareness of your weaknesses, to help you to come to grips with areas of your life where you need to grow. Please understand that as he's doing that heart work in you, it's not just for you, that it has implications that far outreach your lives. And church, don't we know That the heart work he's doing on us and has done on us is ultimately and primarily for his own glory. For we are at our very core worshipers. And by God's grace, if we know Jesus as Lord and Savior, he has rescued us to be once again a worshiper of God. And so he's doing heart work on us and he's chipping away the flesh so that he might be glorified in our lives and through our lives. His heart work on you, whatever it is today, is not primarily about you. But the implications of that far outreach your own. Notice about the second half of chapter 44, the the tenderness of Judah here. And and the softness of his heart now that teaches us that God's heart work on his children has implications that far outreach their lives. The second thing I want us to notice in this section is is the substitutionary nature of Judah's sacrifice. And that teaches us about another foreshadowing of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us. This is not a primary aspect of this message, but it is an important one, and so I don't want us to miss it. Look at verse 33 of chapter 44. Judah says, after all of this, after saying, hey, this is why we brought Benjamin back in the first place. This is why it was so tremendously difficult for Judah to, to Jacob to let him go. And after all of that, he says to J- Joseph, his brother, Now therefore, please let your servant, he's talking to, about himself, he's referring to himself, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brother's. Judah was offering himself as a substitute for his brother Benjamin, whom he assumed really was guilty. Remember, Judah didn't have a clue that Joseph was just playing a trick on him with the cup. He he really thought that, wow, you found it in Benjamin's sack. He truly believed Benjamin to be guilty, and yet he's willing to offer himself in the place of his brother. And so... If things happen according to Judah's offer here, Judah's plan, then what is going to happen? The guilty will go free and the innocent will be punished in his place. What a beautiful picture of the cross because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Consider what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. That's not us. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him, by faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That our sin on the cross of Calvary, our our sin by faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope to be rescued from what we deserve, our sin, the penalty of our sin is laid on Jesus' 
And we, the guilty, go free and we're given his righteousness so that, so that we're seen as innocent, not because of our own righteousness, because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus credited to our account by faith. We, the guilty, by faith go free and the innocent pays the price in our place. This substitutionary sacrifice was beautifully foretold by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to these words. You've heard them before, but just listen to the substitutionary words that are used here. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. In other words, we are the guilty. And the Lord has laid on him, the innocent, the iniquity of us all. And that's what we see symbolized in Judah's offer to be a slave in the place of his brother, whom he knows, he presumes to be guilty. Now, of course, this foreshadowing of Christ here is an imperfect foreshadowing of Christ. It is not a, a Judah's not offering sacrifice, uh, to sacrifice himself to be a slave, but it's a sacrifice nonetheless. Additionally, his, his heart motive here is not altogether pure. Uh, his motive here is to escape the judgment of his father. He doesn't want to go back to his father without Benjamin, and so he's offering to stay here as a slave instead. And so this is an imperfect foreshadowing of Christ, as all foreshadowings of Christ are. They are simply a shadow of the one that is to come. But it is a foreshadowing of him, and it does point us to him. And it's clearly meant here to remind us of the, the grace that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ as we read this story in the Old Testament. So friend, if you're here this morning, as God, and God has graciously made you aware of your own sin and the fact that you are a sinner who deserves judgment because you've rebelled against a holy God, if he's reminded you of that this morning, then let this passage be a reminder. Right here in the middle of the story of Joseph's life, let this be a reminder that the reason of the reason why God was working in Joseph's life and why God ultimately was working in the life of his brothers. Why? Because he was working out his plan to rescue and redeem sinners like you and I. That's what he was doing all throughout this story. And his plan involved bringing his son into the world through this nation that he's starting the building blocks of in this passage. And that this son would rescue us from what we deserve by paying the price that we deserve to pay in our place. He went to the cross, willingly offering himself as a substitute for us, so that by faith in him as our Lord and Savior, we might be rescued from what we deserve and redeemed to be his children for all eternity. And if God has made that clear to you this morning, let me just, let me beg of you, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Are you going to keep trying to earn that acceptance before God by trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just be a better Christian so that you might make the curve? Oh, please understand that the scriptures say that is folly. We cannot earn God's favor by anything that we do, anything that we say, anything that we think. And we can only be made acceptable by faith in Jesus Christ as our substitute. And so, friend, will you come to faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope this morning? Trust in Christ alone to rescue you. So the brothers, thankfully, providentially, they don't take the bait. They don't, they don't take the bait. And instead, Judah, on behalf of his brothers, admits their fault and offers himself as a substitute 
in Benjamin's place. And it's too much for Joseph to handle. He can't control himself anymore. And so, friend, let us read the first half of chapter 45. How does Joseph respond to this? Then Joseph could not control himself before all of those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were, they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land two years, and there are yet five more years in which there will be another, neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go out to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the house of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see Eyes of my brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring me down, bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. This is one of the most tender scenes in all of Scripture. What a beautiful picture of redemption. What a beautiful picture of reconciliation and forgiveness. What a beautiful picture of grace. The brothers are reconciled. A 22-year-old scar of hurt and pain and betrayal and abandonment is wiped away in a moment. Brothers are reconciled. And then immediately steps are taken for them to go back to Canaan and tell dad what happened and bring him back here along with all that you own and, and everyone in the family. Bring everyone back here. So that they might be preserved and survive the famine. But what I want us to see here, and man, Joseph makes it very hard to miss here. He is unequivocal in this as he tells them without reservation that God did this, not you. God did this, not you. He says it four times. In verse 5 he says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And then in verse 7 he says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. In verse 8 he concludes, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all the house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then in verse 9 he says, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Church, from the moment we arrived in chapter 37, 
of Genesis, we said that the overarching theme of this whole section of Scripture, chapter 37 to 50, is God's sovereignty. And here we see the climax of it. Not the end of it. It's not going to be the last time we see it. We're going to see it again. But perhaps this is the most poignant as the brothers are reconciled and as Joseph describes that it was God's doing all along. It was God's hand that was moving all along. In so doing, let us be clear that Joseph is not saying in any way, shape, or form that his brothers did not make willful and sinful decisions to mistreat him and throw him in the pit and sell him to the slave traders and abandon him and betray him. Of course they did. And those decisions were wrong and those decisions were sinful. And their purpose in doing so was likewise evil. Their purpose in doing that to Joseph was simply to rid themselves of this pesky little teenager so that they could get rid of dad's favorite. But God also had a purpose in this. And his purpose was separate from the purpose of his brother's. God's purpose in what happened to Joseph was to preserve a remnant of Israel, of Jacob, so that he could turn Israel, this family, into a nation, and so that he could in turn turn that nation into a blessing for all the nations of the earth through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we learn here, that God uses even the evil choices of sinful men to accomplish his sovereign plan. That's what happened here. God uses the evil choices of Joseph's brothers to accomplish his sovereign plan. God was not the evil, uh, the author of their evil. They were. They're the ones who made that decision. He is not the author of the evil, and he did not tempt them into sin. God does not tempt anyone into sin. But God sovereignly used their evil choices to accomplish his sovereign plan. And the thing is, Joseph could never have seen this in the middle of it, right? He never could have put those pieces together while he was in the pit, while he was in bondage to the Ishmaelites, while he was in slavery in Egypt, while he was in jail in Egypt. He he never could have had the foggiest notion of how God was going to use this to accomplish his sovereign plan. But now on the other side, now he sees it, right? Now all the pieces begin to come together. Now everything comes into focus. Now he begins to see what God was doing all along. Now according to God's divine wisdom, he doesn't always give us the privilege. In fact, he doesn't usually give us that perspective. In fact, I would say to have that perspective of seeing everything and, 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 and why God was doing everything at every point He rarely gives us that. Sometimes he gives us that, but it's rare. We don't often get the privilege of seeing how God long. But man, I'm so very glad that God recorded this story for us in Scripture where Joseph was able to see how everything was God's doing all along so that that same truth can be transposed into our lives when we're in the pit and when we're suffering And when we're in bondage, especially when we're suffering the consequences of the evil choices of sinful people around us. In times like this, we know that we can't even begin to guess how God could possibly cause this to work out for our good and His glory. And when we're in the midst of that, we can be reminded of Joseph here when he said, guys, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. And his purpose for sending me here was so much larger and beyond anything that we could ever have imagined at the time. And to be reminded of that, we can be encouraged to keep trusting God and keep walking with God. Keep having faith in his sovereignty and his providence. Keep serving God while he has us here. Keep telling others about his gospel while he has us here. Even when life doesn't make sense. You know, for many, this past week, 
perhaps is the perfect example of a time that maybe doesn't seem to make sense. For many, maybe the results of the election have you feeling like you've been thrown into a pit. Or that your country's been thrown into a pit. And just so we're not playing political favorites on the flip side, maybe the results of the election have you feeling like you've just been lifted from a pit and that everything's bright and rosy. Kind of like being pulled out of prison and promoted to second in command of the most powerful land on the face of the earth as Joseph was. Having lived through this, I think Joseph would caution both groups this morning to be reminded that God is working on his plan, not ours. And he's working by his timetable, not ours. For those who think you're in the pits as a result of this week, be reminded Jesus is still on the throne and God is still at work. And ultimately his sovereign plan for you as a believer in Jesus Christ is to preserve you to the very end and bring you into his glory. And so, don't take a, don't judge God's ways, don't evaluate God's ways based on a snapshot in time. Wait till the end, and you'll see what he's been doing all along. And for those who think that you've just been lifted from the pits this week, remember that this is not our home Remember that this is not our home, and, and, and remember that Joseph, what, what Joseph's and his brothers being led into Egypt ultimately led to, it led to 400 years of bondage. And so there were some t- days of suffering, hard days of suffering ahead for these folks. Again, don't judge his ways by taking a snapshot in time. Wait till the end. And you'll see what he's been doing all along, even if the end, when you get to see that, comes after the grave. Let's pray.